Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're in the week of Thanksgiving, of course. Many call the Friday after Thanksgiving Black Friday. But StoryCorps promotes the day as a national day of listening. They call listening the least expensive but most meaningful gift that you can give this holiday season. And today we'll talk about the power of listening. We'll, of course, promote the National Day of Listening. There's a special StoryCorps event. It's coming up on television, oddly enough. We'll talk about that. And we'll hear stories from Utah downwinder Michelle Thomas, former National Park Service ranger Greer Cheshire, who escaped a flash flood, and Wilma Angus, a 94-year-old woman who died within 48 hours of recording a stunning account of her life for StoryCorps in southern Utah earlier this year. Our guests include former StoryCorps facilitator Lisa Polito and psychotherapist and amateur oral historian Martha Hamm, who says that stories change us. We're going to invite you to share your story as well today. You can do that uh, on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, just go to uh, Facebook, Utah Public Radio, and see the uh, StoryCorps um, uh, postcard there is what we have. You can uh, reach us at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us uh, by email at upraxis at gmail.com. We welcome in, in studio, Martha Ham. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You are a psychotherapist in the St. George area. Correct. Um, that's your day job. That's my day job. But uh, for a long time, you've been collecting stories and such, uh, uh, oral historian. I have. And uh, what I do as an oral historian is quite different, really, from being a therapist, and yet there are huge similarities. I had the good fortune in my uh, early 20s to befriend a couple of women who were fledgling independent radio producers. They're now known to you listeners as the Kitchen Sisters. Yes, our listeners will recognize their name, right? <laughs> I hope so. They, uh, but, but anyway, as a result, I did a lot of listening of their feature stories, and they really helped me become a better listener. And, and of course, that's one of the major tools of a therapist is listening, and it improved my therapy. But, but the other thing I, I found is I sometimes went with them on interviews. And what I noticed as people told their story, I could see right before my very eyes, um, their hearts changing or them putting together a a missing puzzle piece of their own story and it becoming internalized. And then, you know, this last May, uh, StoryCorps was in St. George for the month. St. George was so lucky to have the energy of Utah Public Radio being willing to come down and, and listen to our community and record us. But I spent a lot of time hanging around the booth, and um, it was amazing watching people just float out of the booth mm. or come with their come out with their capes on. They just felt so great telling their story. So I think telling our stories, and then of course here now at UPR as we're putting the collection together and broadcasting it, the belief is that it changes other people as they listen to these stories we've collected. I'm going to follow up on that as well. It's interesting that you you felt like Kitchen Sisters helped you become a better listener. And I'll follow up with that as opposed to and maybe in conjunction with your profession. I want to bring in Lisa Polito. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me join you. And, and uh, hi, Martha. I haven't 
haven't talked to you in a while. Nice to hear your voice. Same here. Hey, Lisa. So, Lisa, what, what's, you were a facilitator for StoryCorps. Tell us, first of all, what that, what that is. What did you do? Um, yeah, actually, I was the site supervisor, which meant uh, both that I facilitated um, interviews and facilitating an interview um, is the recording aspect, the technical aspect. Um, and in the mobile tour, the recording is occurring occurring in an Airstream trailer. Um, so there's, rather than a traditional recording studio, which is usually well soundproofed, the Airstream trailer is as soundproof as you can get an Airstream trailer to be, and we try and be in uh, locations that are not going to be too loud. So at any rate, that's the first order of business is making sure that we can, a facilitator can provide a high quality, professional quality audio recording when we're in the booth. Um, the other aspects of it are to orient the participants to the StoryCorps experience. Most people, um, and you probably know this, Tom, from hosting a live radio program, most people are not accustomed to being interviewed. Um, and so you want to, as a facilitator, you want to quickly orient people to the process, get them comfortable in the surroundings. And one of the main things that we did was let people know there's no wrong way to record your story. You can't make a mistake. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's the technical aspect and the orienting and comforting. And then also you're supposed to be, as a facilitator, listening in for the ways that you can help draw out more story. On occasion, people who know each other well are in the booth and recording, and they're recording a story with which maybe the family members are very familiar. And so they'll sometimes weave out details because on occasion it's a story that's been told before. And the facilitator, as an objective third party, can hear some of the missing pieces and help draw out um, additional information from the storyteller. So those are kind of, that's kind of an overview of what a facilitator does. Uh, must have been, and as, as we go along, I'll have you tell some stories. It's, it's probably a pretty extraordinary experience. You go out for a year or two, I think? Yeah, with, it's with a, trailer? the mobile tour, it's mm -hmm. one year, mm -hmm. because the booth is moving every four to six weeks. Um, so it's a bit of an itinerant lifestyle, and a year is just about right. <laughs> so what, what are you doing now that you're... Uh... Well, I had been in radio uh, prior to working for StoryCorps, and now I've taken a, a large turn and am helping a friend expand his business. So I'm doing some marketing and um, operations. So Interesting. More, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, um, let's hear some audio. This is from uh, the uh, StoryCorps sessions in southern Utah. I believe you, you, you facilitated this. I'm talking about William Angus. This is an extraordinary oh, yeah. story. By the way, we're going to hear the Utah StoryCorps version of uh, Wilma Angus uh, this week. So uh, Thursday morning uh, during Morning Edition and Friday afternoon during uh, All Things Considered. Uh, tell us a little bit about Wilma Angus. Wilma, it was an amazing opportunity for me to facilitate Wilma's interview with her daughter, Kate. Um, Wilma 
came in when StoryCorps hosted a, a, a remote recording session. We weren't recording in our Airstream trailer. We took our recording equipment to the city offices um, there in Springdale, and we set up, and we were able, because we were there one day, we were only able to interview um, or uh, record seven participants. And Wilma was one of the seven who came in from the community. And she had been recommended by other community members because within the community, she was a remarkable woman, um, 94 years old and still vibrant and robust and active in the community. In fact, she was during her interview, she mentioned that she was no longer going to grow tomatoes and then a little more detail came out that in the conversation between Wilma and her daughter, Kate, that for Wilma, the prior year, she had grown 700 tomato plants in her garden. She sold tomatoes at the local farmer's market and was renowned. I, apparently, she had even sold some to some of the restaurants in Las Vegas, had, would, would um, take delivery of her special heirloom tomatoes. So... When I say she was vibrant and robust, she was gardening uh, 700 tomato plants the prior year. But she said this year she was gonna she was gonna take time to quit quit being a tomato farmer. Um, really, sharp. She was truly a vegetable producer, a heirloom tomato producer, not just a gardener. Yes, exactly. Um, and she came in, and she had been reluctant to make the appointment and come in to record. And actually, um, Martha Ham was um, was the pivotal person in getting uh, Wilma to come in and record. And uh, Wilma seemed even a little skeptical once she was there and joining us uh, to record about the whole process. Um, or about why anyone would want to hear her story, really. It wasn't about the process. It was about why would anybody want to record what I have to say. And then she sat down, and for 40 minutes of recording time with her daughter, she gave an eloquent and really well-paced and timed account of her long life, 94 years, just some incredible perspectives, um, that she shared, um, and it, it came to be very momentous for the family as Wilma passed away, as you mentioned, Tom, uh, less than 48 hours after making the recording, and there was certainly no indication that that was, that, that that was on the horizon. She was, as I said, vibrant and robust and um, it was very shocking to me to learn of her passing. Mm. Um, and that recording became, I think, increased in value to her family just exponentially, given the timing of of her passing. Um, yeah, it was it was an incredible moment for me. Um, well, let's let's hear with her. let's hear some of this uh, this audio. Uh, Martha Ham, you uh, Lisa was saying that. Uh, that uh, this very vibrant lady wondered why anybody would want to hear her story. That's probably a reaction that that you get and StoryCorps gets uh, quite a bit, I would imagine. Because we, we don't think our stories, you know, unless it's, we're a famous person, are, are going to be of, uh, of use to people. It's true. Um, 
And one of the reasons that it becomes so important is that we're recording history and ways that we do things, and it seems ordinary. And some of the practices that we have today or some of the practices that someone uh, may have had in the past seem so ordinary, but then they're, they're gone, and no one really knows about them in that very same way. Movies are being made about them, but those are actors. Um, and some of the things that, that Wilma describes, there were no movie cameras back then, and um, so we get to understand about riding in a carriage in the snow to church. Let's hear some audio. Uh, so I, I think, um, Martham, you, you pulled some of these uh, clips together. So yes. Maybe you could set some of these up. What's the first one we're going to hear? Uh, this is the very beginning of her recording, and she's talking about her uh, earliest memories in West Las- Glasgow, Missouri. Wilma came to Utah in 1987, but she grew up in Missouri. Let's hear this. I was born in West Glasgow, Missouri, December 18th, and I keep thinking it was a dark and stormy night, (laughs) thanks to Charles Schultz. And the farm was just across the Missouri River from Glasgow, Missouri, which was a small town of about 2,000 people, and where we went for all our supplies. And back in 1918, there was no bridge connecting the farm with Glasgow. So we had to take the ferry across the river anytime we wanted to go. And I think I must have been at least 10 years old when they finally got a highway bridge through there. And it made communicating a lot easier. Yeah, just uh, just ordinary things, but it's extraordinary to the community. Um let's hear let's hear another couple of these what's what's the next one martha um this is a description of her farm i just was going to follow up on the reason i selected that clip i think it would be really hard for us to imagine being in a town where we are isolated that we could not get to a store um they i guess didn't have telephone uh, they they could not communicate in this little town unless they crossed a ferry. And as a result, Wilma went to a school, a one-room school, right there in that that small community. So they they were pretty isolated, and things changed in her life dramatically when a bridge was built at age 10, and she'll talk about that a little bit later. So this next clip is um, her description of the farm, and to me this is just uh, a very relaxing passage. But the farm was wonderful. It was about 400 acres, and my father and his brother ran it. The land was considered river bottom, which means that Over the years, the Missouri River had deposited a lot of silt and organic matter, and so the soil was fertile and the ground was level. And uh, the farm had a big farmhouse with a smokehouse, an ice house, which means that 
during the winter when the Missouri River was frozen bank to bank, um, the f people on the farm would go to the river, cut out these huge blocks of ice, come back and store them in the ice house with a lot of straw in between. And then the rest of the year, they, as the weather got warmer, they slowly melted and it cooled this ice cellar, which was below it. And let's see, what else was there? Oh, there was the uh, summer kitchen behind the house, which meant that that's where you did your cooking in the summer to keep the big house from getting too warm. Two barns, a scale house so that they could drive the cattle onto the scale and... and uh, weigh them right there before they send them off to the market. So that's Wilma Angus, a 94-year-old woman. You could, you could hear she's very vital. Uh, these are wonderful stories. Recorded in southern Utah earlier this year as part of a story corps. And uh, you're hearing these stories on Utah Public Radio Thursday mornings in Morning Edition and uh, during uh, Thursday mornings, Access Utah, and then Friday afternoons in All Things Considered. We're talking about the power of listening, and uh, desirability of recording our loved ones' uh, stories. And uh, StoryCorps is promoting the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. They're encouraging you to listen, first of all, and, and number two, I guess, record those stories if you can. And the, the reason we've, uh, we're starting with William, Wilma Angus's stories is this highlights the urgency of uh, getting these on tape. Um, this very vital 94-year-old uh, died within 48 hours of recording her story. Of course, that becomes a treasure for her family. We're talking with uh, Martha Hamm, who's a psychotherapist in Southern Utah, an amateur oral historian, and a former StoryCorps facilitator, Lisa Polito. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like. Love to hear your story. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where... Uh, Rebecca Raphael, thank you, and Joyce Howell have liked our uh, our post. Uh, you can just comment there. You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Uh, Lisa Polito, as we go along listening to Wilma, and just anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, uh, listening to these clips is refreshing. My memory of the specifics of Wilma's story and it's also reminding me um, that when we were in St. George, you know, many participants were not familiar with StoryCorps. Um, and so they were a little uncertain when they would come into the booth. And um, like Wilma, many people couldn't understand how their story would be of interest for recording for historical reasons or for their family or for any reason. They couldn't. They couldn't understand why someone would want to listen to them, why somebody would want to record their story. And hearing Wilma's descriptions of farm life, and as Martha was pointing out, about not having easy access across the river with a bridge, you know, the, the transportation limitations of that era um, compared to how we live now. A lot of the people who came in in St. George who were a little, a little reluctant, that's the that's the scenario I would pose to them to say, what if right now you could hear a recording of someone you didn't even know from St. George 100 years ago? What if you could sit down and listen to the story of the street sweeper and what his day was like, just 
going through and, and cleaning the road or picking up garbage or, you know, doing any what we think of as kind of a mundane function. And 201, every person, once they thought of it that way, if they could hear an everyday person's stories and life from 100 years ago in their town, suddenly they could understand the future value of what they might share. Because I think anyone would be interested in hearing a description of life 100 years ago. And with Wilma, we essentially got nearly that um, because of her age and she being so so lucid and such a great storyteller as well. Um, we you know we really do get this image and this understanding of what life was like then. So anyway, that was that was really great to hear those clips. Thank you, Martha, for putting those together. And and it does remind me of of that. If anybody's looking for a way to get their relative to sit down and talk to them and tell a story because they might find that relatives are reluctant to sit down on the National Day of Listening and record their story, that is that can be a real compelling hook to, to explain to them. What if you could hear your aunt or your grandmother or your grandfather or your great-grandfather? What if you could hear a recording of that? And, you know, then that that's an idea that really resonates with anyone being able to hear a voice and stories from the past. Um, so that might be a selling point as folks are looking to get their family members to record on the National Day of Listening. Earth, go ahead. One thing about uh, Wilma that I'd like to add is that she was remarkably well-read and a Utah Public Radio listener. Oh, we like that, yes. yes. <laughs> and she knew what StoryCorps was at age yeah. 94. Yeah. Um, and this next clip I think we're probably going to play um, really demonstrates um, how she read and listened and took in information about what was happening in the culture at the time, and then really tried, consolidated that, and thought back on her lifetime, um, and posed questions to herself about what was wrong, what wasn't happening there. And this is a clip about segregation, um, and when she first realized that the schools were segregated. Hmm. Let's hear this next clip on on segregation. This is uh, Wilma Angus, uh, recorded in Southern Utah as part of StoryCorps. The um, bridge was across the Missouri River, and we could get to town easier. And I went to a, um, a religious high school for the first two years, and then I transferred to the Glasgow High School, which was fine. And I keep thinking back after I read The Warmth of Other Suns, how segregated everything was. At the time, I didn't realize it, except when I was at the high school, I remember the principal loading up all our old textbooks one day and taking them to the colored high school. Mm -hmm. We got the new ones. The colored people got the... So you weren't really even aware of that there was, was were you aware that there was a, another high school? No, there, I wasn't aware there was such a thing as all this segregation between mm -hmm. the blacks and the whites. Mm -hmm. 
But I do remember when my father hired African-Americans, I suppose that's a proper word to use these days, to help with the farm work, the white hired hands and the family ate first. And then after they left, then the black hired men came in Mm -hmm. ate. It's just the way things were. But Mm -hmm. why didn't I have the courage to stand up and do something about it? I didn't. That's um, extraordinary audio from Wilma Angus. Uh, she's a 94-year-old woman, Southern Utah, recorded as part of StoryCorps. 48 hours, uh, within 48 hours after she recorded that, she was gone. Of course, all of these interviews, Martha Hamm, um, eventually the participants will be gone. <laughs> but this just highlighted the urgency. And we're, uh, we're promoting StoryCorps' great idea of uh, using the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. Martha Ham, you said something uh, yesterday. We had a, a little conversation and preparing for this. You said something that I think would relieve some pressure from some people. You said, first of all, uh, you know, just to start out, don't even worry about recording somebody. Just, just listen. That's a starting place. It exactly is. It's the, uh, StoryCorps did coin this as the National Day of Listening, not the National Day of Recording. If you're able to record, that is, that's really wonderful. But we all want to be heard, and that's what promotes connection. And we often think that good communication is about speaking at least 50% of communication, if not more, is listening. So it's it's peacemaking to mm. find someone that you want to listen to and give them that time. And so often we are uh, watching our cell phones or researching something that came up in the conversation on the iPad. But just put it aside and listen. Then if you do want to take it the next step, and of course Wilma Angus's family is very glad that they, that she, that they have this recording – um, I, I suppose today is a, is a good day to do this, uh, a day of technology. You can just, you just uh, click your iPhone and, and off you go. iPhone, if you have a recorder, you can even use your com- computer. Some computers uh, have that mechanism. For instance, if you have GarageBand, you can record. It's best to have a microphone if you can, but if not, uh, record without it. Best to have headphones if you can. Um, but still record. You won't be sorry. Um, Collecting memories, getting people to talk about their memories, or recording things that are happening right then. The day after Thanksgiving is such a great day uh, to consider recording because families often have traditions. Maybe your mother, your grandmother makes turkey soup And so you record her making that turkey soup. And if she was like my grandmother, uh, that little special secret isn't in the recipe. (laughs) So you might get her on tape telling you that and uh, so on. That'd be a great memory. Let's bring in a caller. Uh, Paul has called us. Uh, Glad you called, Paul. Uh, Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I was um, listening to the program as I have been for a while. However, um, uh, I'm about 74, and uh, one of the things that I have done in the past is um, I've done the mountain man thing, the fur trapper period from, say, the uh, Lewis and Clark period up until around 1840. And one of the things that I did in a program that I created for schools when I went in to teach the students about that period was some of the Native American legends. And one particular legend um, 
which is shared by quite a number of different tribes, is a vision quest story. And uh, the bottom line for this particular story, it's about a young boy who uh, has been taught by his grandparents about how to become a a good person and how to uh, pray to the Creator to receive information about how he can uh, best help his people. And um, so... uh, he climbs to the top of the mountain, and he's praying to the Great Spirit. And after uh, four days of fasting and praying, um, he wakes up, and uh, there's a lightning storm, and he uh, is able to see uh, a lot of things And uh, in the nighttime, actually. And uh, then he's happy with that, and he feels he's supposed to be a scout for his uh, particular tribe. <clears throat> so when he wakes up in the morning, he's ready to climb down the top of this uh, snow-covered mountain, and uh, realizes that uh, there's a snake in front of him. and uh, But it's not a regular snake, it's a rattlesnake, which can speak. And uh, the rattlesnake asks the boy if he would pick him up and carry him to the bottom of the mountain because he's afraid he's going to either starve or freeze or die up there. And uh, the boy listens, but many times he says, well, I've been taught that you're a rattlesnake, you'll bite me and I'll die here. And... Uh, of course, the uh, rattlesnake, being clever, uh, repeats a number of times, no, I won't do that. However, um, I shared this story with uh, a number of uh, at rendezvous, and one particular time after I told that particular legend, um, the bottom line of the legend is after the boy does pick the rattlesnake up, carries him down to the bottom of the mountain, uh, he sets the rattlesnake uh, on the ground, which coils and bites him and then slithers away, and the boy hollers to him. He said, yeah, but you promised you wouldn't bite me, and the the rattlesnake looks back at him and said, yes, but you you knew what I was when you picked me up. And, excuse me, anyhow, after I had told this particular uh, legend uh, to a, uh, at the rendezvous, after we were drumming, uh, I was getting ready to leave when it was, rendezvous was over, and this woman who I'd met from New, Mex- New Mexico, I'm out in Utah, and she had come up and stopped me and uh, said I had, <coughs> excuse me, she, uh, that I had changed her life. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And she says, no. She said, I realized I was, <coughs> after listening to that legend, that I was going down the wrong road, and I needed to change my life. And uh, she <clears throat> she thanked me. And I've never forgotten that. And I didn't realize the impact. I, I was aware of the impact, and I understood the moral of the story, but how it affects people. And so bottom line here, I uh, appreciate you listening to me for a moment, but... Um, we never know what we'll say or do that will have an impact on other people's lives. Paul, Paul, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. You bet. Okay, thank you. And Martha and Lisa, that's the power of, power of listening, power of story. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break, um, and when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll hear some more uh, stories from StoryCorps and uh, talk about the power of listening and encourage you to uh, take advantage of the National Day of Listening. StoryCorps promotes that day rather than... Uh, 
Black Friday and rushing out to uh, to shop. I guess you could do both. You could you could go out to the midnight sale and then come back and record your family. But they uh, promote the day after uh, Thanksgiving as the National Day of Listening, and uh, so um, we're talking with Martha Ham, who is a psychotherapist and amateur oral historian, and Lisa Polito, who is a former StoryCorps facilitator, and we're listening to stories recorded in the StoryCorps booth. Uh, in southern Utah earlier this year, and you're hearing those on Thursdays and Fridays as a part of Utah StoryCorps um, through, uh, I think, through this coming June for a year. Uh, there's uh, one other event that we encourage people to uh, participate in, uh, Martha Ham, and that is, oddly enough, StoryCorps on television. Uh, tell people about that before we go to break. Yes, there is a half-hour special on public television Uh, called Listening is an Act of Love. And this is honoring um, StoryCorps' 10th anniversary. And on this special, David Isay, the founder of StoryCorps, will be featured, and 10 animated pieces will be on. So animators have listened to these stories and done the cartoon, if you will, just from listening to the story. And I think one of the things that we all do when we listen to radio is we make that movie in our head. So now these artists have created these uh, these cartoon cartoons, these vignettes. And so this will be broadcast here in Utah December 1st at 9.30 and just go to pub, your public television station and consult the schedule and just put in the search, listening is an act of love. All right, an opportunity for you to uh, to experience StoryCorps on television. We'll have much more about the power of listening, about the National Day of Listening with Martha Hamm and Lisa Polito and some more audio from uh, StoryCorps recorded in southern Utah following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Introducing Pumpernickel Rye and Pandemie. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Uh, as you've been hearing, uh, if you've uh, been tuned into the program, uh, StoryCorps is promoting the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. They call listening the least expensive but most meaningful gift that you can give this holiday season. Martha Ham, one of our guests, has said uh, if you're a little uh, intimidated by recording, just listen. And then that, that can morph into recording. Get out your iPhone or whatever and, uh, and record people. Um, and we have with us as well Lisa Polito, who is a, a former StoryCorps facilitator. She went around for a year with the Airstream trailer and uh, and had a, a great experience. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and we're uh, we're wanting to hear your stories. Uh, Paul called in with a with a story which uh, illustrated very well the, the power of stories. Um, and you can uh, call 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, or you can uh, share your comments on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, Lisa Polito, as we've been listening to some of these stories, I wonder, wonder what your thoughts are. Well, actually, Tom, I, I'm, I'm glad to have a chance to chime in here. Um, I've been thinking a lot about a personal family recording that occurred Long before StoryCorps, in 1976, uh, my grandfather passed away, and my cousin, who is a journalist, uh, had the foresight to 
record my grandmother. Um, and at the time, record, <laughs> the recording was done on, I'm sure probably you and Martha both remember, those little like one-inch cassette tapes. They were tiny little micro oh, recorders yes. that at the time were kind of the cutting-edge, transportable uh, recording device. But he sat down with one of those little tapes and asked my grandmother all kinds of really wonderful questions, um, him being a journalist. And and that recording endures, and I have listened to it. Um, of course, I had to adapt it to another media because that little tiny micro cassette went away. But having those stories later in my adult life to listen back to and to hear my grandmother's voice, the way that she said things, and um, she... She had a little lilt to her voice, and she was an immigrant from Mexico who came to southern Arizona in the early 20s and hearing about life in southern Arizona at that time and hearing her experiences um, as an immigrant. uh, I can't tell you how meaningful that has been to her children, to her grandchildren, to her great-grandchildren, to be able to hear her stories in her voice not stories that were passed along and maybe some of the details got lost along the way. Um, We get to hear it firsthand from her, and I've listened to it many, many times. And as I was mentioning earlier, that people sometimes don't understand why they would want to be recorded. Likewise, my grandmother did not understand at all why anybody would want to hear about her life. Um, But knowing how powerful that recording has been, to me and my other family members, really helped me kind of persuade when I was doing facilitating for StoryCorps, it helped me persuade some of the reluctant participants who came into the booth and, and didn't understand that value. Likewise, I agree with, with Martha. The number one priority is to sit down and give that gift of attentiveness, of listening to your loved ones and really hearing their stories about their life. Um, But I do think it's worth the effort to convince someone to record because hearing it the one time is meaningful to you um, and it, it can be very instructive, but I just can't stress enough um, how powerful it can be later to have that voice recorded. Um, It, it's just invaluable. Whether it goes into a StoryCorps archive or you add it to the StoryCorps this year is having the wall of um, listening where you can upload your family's stories that you record on the National Day of Listening and upload them to be there for others to hear. Even if you don't do those steps and you keep the recording just for your own family, it I cannot stress enough how magical it is to have that artifact of your loved one. And as we were pointing out earlier with the case of Wilma Angus, it's imperative to get it now. I mean, for for all of us, we, we don't know when the last conversation we're going to have with our loved one might be. And you, you, you have this chance to sit down and listen and record and save something for yourself and for future generations. And it's worth the effort. It's not that hard of a thing to do anymore. Um, Recording equipment is, as Martha was pointing out, your computer, your smartphone, 
There's many, many easy ways to record. And I, I just can't encourage people enough to, to take the time out and sit down and really listen and then make that one extra step of effort to record it. I started recording my family about three years ago. And I don't know if my family is like everyone else's family, but they they sort of misbehaved. <laughs> they didn't take me seriously. Um, and I knew that my mother would take me seriously. So I uh, found a quiet place and recorded with her. And, um, and then what I did shortly after doing that is I shared it with the family, and then everything changed. Mm. Once you have recorded and shared it, people start to get it. Mm. And then I had absolutely no trouble getting family members to uh, participate. And and I realized, oh, I didn't record so-and-so. Their feelings are going to be hurt. Mm. So you you can establish a norm there that once people hear it, um, they start to appreciate it. Let's hear hear a piece. This is uh, Martha Hamm's mother. Now, my father showed the first talking movie in Opelika. Up to that point, they had been silent movies. And Miss Christine Tidwell sat at the grand piano at the foot of the stage and played the piano. If the cowboys came through, she played very fast music, you know, to make sure everybody understood, here comes the cowboys. If somebody died and they were going to a funeral, she played very slow, sad music. And people then felt that this was an asset to the movie, having the music there by Miss Tidwell, a local lady. Cut it off. You explain that you 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 added you kept in her her whispering cut it off. I kept it in, and I don't know that I would put that in a little podcast for my family. But you know, it's it's like you have a little picture that you love. Um, I'm 60 years old, and I cannot tell you the number of times my mother has whispered a direction to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you've got one of those. Now. I have one of those. There Plus, she said, "Cut it off," mm-hmm. and that is, uh, you know, people say. Turn Turn it off, flip it off, but that is perhaps regional, generational. Anyway, it was just it just was something I wanted. We're uh, reaching uh, the end of time, and we uh, it occurs to me that we collectively have uh, vastly overprepared. We have a lot more audio, which we could play it out for you. I want to get this in since I promoted it uh, all uh, yesterday in in uh, or all over the weekend. This is uh, former Zion uh, Park Ranger Greer Cheshire talking with fellow ranger Barb Graves about a dramatic incident. This is recorded in, uh, in the StoryCorps booth in southern Utah earlier this year. We hiked from Russell Gulch down into, there were about six of us park rangers, all women except one. And that's another thing, you know, we were rangers when women weren't rangers either. That's kind mm-hmm. of a, another aspect of that. But we hiked in there, we had a lot of rappelling to do, and um, the, the weather report was fine. We were on a rappel. I was the first one over, and it was maybe 20 feet or something like that. And so I took off my pack, and I set it down on the canyon floor, and the canyon's only about 10 feet wide. You could, you know, touch wall to wall, but about 1,500 feet deep, just these straight canyon walls like you're in a room, you know, Mm. that's a hallway, you know, (laughs) a really deep hallway. 
so I was on this rappel. I get down, I take off my pack, and um, I look up the rope at the next person who's coming down. And my eyes just kept coursing up along the canyon walls until I saw the sky, which was as black as night. And I just went, run! (laughs) (laughs) And I ran. I turned around and ran. I put my pack back on and ran down canyon because I knew we had to find a place out of there, Mm -hmm. a way out. You know, it's, I feel like I abandoned everyone on the rappel, but I thought, they can get down the rappel. I have to find a place to yeah. stay or we can fit all of us. Right. So I ran down Canyon about, I don't know, a hundred feet or a little more maybe. And, um, came to a pour off another waterfall. There was no water in the Creek at that time. So mm-hmm. we call them pour offs when they're dry. But I came to this pour off that was like another rappel. And I was like, oh, I can't go any farther down Canyon. We're stuck here. And on this side of me, the Canyon was just like this wall, just straight up 1500 feet. And I looked the other way, and there was a rock fall going up the, you know, that had broken the canyon mm-hmm. wall. So I ran up that rock fall, and as I was going up, it just, the heavens unleashed. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. sky opened, and the ocean came down. I mean, it was pelting, hard, pouring rain. I almost couldn't make it up the rock fall because it became so slippery with water. And then I looked down and I saw the next person come up and look over the pour off. I called out to them, you know, up here. And that person came up and then we eventually got all six of us up on this tiny ledge that was about, I don't know, a foot wide. Then we actually got separated because the other ranger and I went forward to see if we could get out of the canyon, which we couldn't. And we got separated because of from the other four because a waterfall came over the lip of the canyon right mm-hmm. at that point between us. Uh-huh. So we spent the night a little bit down canyon. They spent the night up there on that ledge, and uh, it was a miserable night. No doubt. I thought I was going <laughs> to die. The biggest flood I've ever seen came through that canyon, and uh, there was stuff coming down off the walls, you know, yeah. rocks and trees breaking off and falling next to us, these big rocks just Fudding into the ground. And That's yeah, when the story. water came over that pour off that I had stopped at, which was, you know, 15 feet or so, it just went straight out. It didn't just dribble over the falls, it just shot, shot straight out. out. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. impressive and it made me realize nobody would have survived mm-hmm. if we hadn't gotten up on that. Ma- yeah. We happened to be just in the one place in the canyon that you could get out. That's former Zion Park Ranger uh, Greer Chester talking with fellow Ranger Barb Graves about that uh, dramatic experience in, in their lives. We just have a couple of minutes left. We want to fit in this uh, piece from uh, Michelle Thomas, uh, Martha Ham, who's a, who's a downwinder. Yes, she is. And a downwinder is a person who lived in southern Utah during the atomic testing in at the Nevada test site. St. George is about 100 miles to the west, and a lot of the radiation blew and concentrated in St. George, and there were many people who suffered terrible health consequences as a result. And this is uh, Michelle's memory. Michelle's 61 years old now. This is her memory of this occurring. I go to elementary's and tell the children that when I was their age, they would sound an alarm, and it would be how we tested to see how to get ready for Russian bombs, Russian attacks. Now, I found found out since then they did this all over America, too. 
in any event, we'd rise and get under our desks. I mean, that's so laughable. That would be like the people in the Twin Towers getting under their desks. But we practiced that every day. And then the recess bell would ring, and we would frolic outside in the freshly fallen ash of the bombs that had been the bomb that had been detonated earlier that day it covered everything the swings the merry-go-round we draw our names in the cement in this dust but it was just so peculiar that we'd be practicing this but it didn't apply here my mother i'm so proud of her she didn't have higher education but she had an enormous amount of common sense. In the 50s in school, it was, you know, America was, we were the white hats in every situation. And and to learn from her when I'd go home and she would say, the government's killing us, not Russia. And she would write stories and write letters to all the congressmen, to everyone, to alert them. That's uh, pretty impactful, and uh, we'll have to end there. We're, we're just 30 seconds left. It's time for me to tell you that uh, StoryCorps is promoting the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening, and uh, they're encouraging you to listen, first of all, and second of all, record your loved ones. And whether your story is dramatic as Michelle Thomas's, or you might think it's mundane, it's going to be important to your family, so get that recorded. Uh, we've been talking with Martha Hamm and Lisa Polito. Thank you so much to, to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And a reminder, look up your television listings. There is a StoryCorps special on television coming up soon. For producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Holly Strand for the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Throughout history, salt has held enormous significance for human society. And not just because it makes food taste better. Salt is a biological necessity. The human body needs a small but regular supply of sodium to maintain a balance of body fluids, keep muscles and nerves running smoothly, and help certain organs work properly. Thousands of years ago, salt was discovered to have another vital function, as a food preservative. This discovery quickly transformed the human lifestyle. For if people could preserve their food, they no longer had to depend on the seasonal availability of it. Further, preservation allowed people to travel over long distances with a portable food supply. Because of its central importance to health and human welfare, salt acquired interesting forms of cultural significance as well. The major religions all have traditions based on salt, and spilling salt is a bad omen. But you can mitigate by throwing the spilled salt over your left shoulder into the eyes of the devil that lurks there. In many places, salt was used as money. The English word salary comes from the Latin phrase salarium argentum, or salt money, which was paid to Roman soldiers. Before the evolution of modern geology and extraction techniques, salt was difficult to find and to remove. The limited supply led to increased demand. In Salt, a world history, author Mark Kurlansky described how salt demand spawned extensive trade routes, alliances, and even empires. Salt taxes were a common source of government income as well as a cause for revolt.
Here in Utah, it's hard to imagine getting worked up about salt supply. There's so much of it lying around. That's because, as the 20,000 square miles of water that was Lake Bonneville evaporated, salt was precipitated all over the dried-up lake bed. The Great Salt Lake itself contains about 4.5 billion tons of salt. Currently, three corporations extract salt using over 80,000 acres of solar evaporation ponds near the lake. They produce over 2 million tons of salt per year. This roughly equals the amount of salt flowing into the lake. For the Bear, Weber, and Jordan Rivers, add about 2.2 million tons of salt annually. Utah and nearby states use the Great Salt Lake salt for de-icing roadways. Some of the salt is pressed into pellets for water softeners. Ranchers get salt lick blocks for their livestock. And huge quantities of bulk salt are used in metal, chemical, paper, and other industries. Food grade or table salt is not produced from the Great Salt Lake area. However, Redmond Minerals Incorporated produces table salt in Sevier County. All this talk about salt has me craving some french fries. I think I'll go get some. For Wild About Utah, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.